That room on the boat. Hello, this is Howard Pendleton, commonly known to you out there as Mr. Science. Today we're going to deal with a miracle of gas refrigeration. And here to assist me is a lad from New Orleans, Sanford Berger. Sandy, that's great fish country down there, isn't it? Well, it's full of deer and elk, too. Uh, You'll also find field mice, crows, hens, oxen, cats, owls, bugs. I Uh, see. Well, the reason I mention fish, uh, Sandy, is because I'm familiar with a fine seafood place down there, Delacorte's Flounder Palace. It must, it's a must for any visitor. Why, well, it's been off limits for seven years, Mr. Science. Sandy, let's uh, talk a bit about refrigeration today. All right, Mr. Science. Well, doesn't it seem paradoxical to you that a refrigerator is made cold by a flame? Holy cat! <laughs> well, I'd tell a gang at school that. I thought it was made cold by the ice cubes, Mr. Science. No nonsense, Sandy. The principle involved here is the transfer of warm matter to cold matter. Now, did you ever notice what happens... When you turn the refrigerator off... Holy cat! Yeah, the food gets spoiled, Mr. Science. That's right, Sandy. And that's because the flame isn't supplying any cold. Am I making myself clear? Well, I can't exactly say that all this is rubbing off on me too well, Mr. Science. (laughs) (laughs) So far, all I get out of it is if I jump into a flame, I'm liable to cool off. (laughs) Sandy, I'm going to open this refrigerator. All right, I'll back up. Now look in there and tell me what you see. Oh, gee, it's all wet. Leaping lizards, and the food in there is good and squashed up. And the cheese floating down on the bottom. Well, Mr. now, Science. all this is certainly perplexing to me. I guess the Mr. Science custodian forgot to hook it up. Yes, there's quite a stank uh, there. Sandy, at any rate, uh, you can see what happened here. The flame went out, and the refrigerator warmed up because of it. Uh, <clears throat> Mr. Science. Well, wait till I shut the refrigerator door. Sandy. Yes, there's a good amount of unbearableness around here. Now, I'll get the gas flame going again, and in no time at all. Uh, here's a match, Mr. Science. Better wear gloves when you light it. You'll freeze your fingers. <laughs> well, there we are. Now the flame is lit, and in about a half hour, the refrigerator will be freezing again. Any questions, Sandy? Oh, boy, Mr. Science. How come, when my mother cooked a pot of soup on the stove, how come we don't get a load of ice? Instead of a pot of soup. Oh, well, a stove is based on an entirely different principle, Sandy. In a stove, the flame heats the soup. You get what I mean? Oh, yeah, gee, Mr. Science. From now on, I'm never going to throw an ice cube from a moving car. Boy, Smokey the Bear's got enough trouble as it is. Good advice for all of us, Sandy. I'm glad I was given the opportunity to broaden your horizon here today, son. Well, this is Mr. Science, Howard Pendleton, saying knowledge is fruit for the mind. So, try fruit consumption. Once again, it's time for Matt Neffer, Boy Spot Welder. Brought to you by stuff you put in a glass that fizzes up and gets all over your suit and everything. Matt's trying days at the aircraft plant are over now. He's between jobs and sitting in his tastefully appointed apartment. He hears the doorbell ring and his friend Todd enters. Todd, come in. Yes, Matt. I hurried over when I discovered you were between jobs. <laughs> it's a nice way of putting it. Actually, here I am, the world champion spot welder, and I'm... Out of work, Todd. Well, that job at the aircraft plant is over now, Matt, but as champion welder, I'm sure you'll get another job very quickly. Out here in the back entry, Todd. Yes. Mm-hmm. Boy, it's cold out here. Yes, there's a nip in the air. They don't have any heat out here, Todd. Well, it does keep the thing. vegetables and apples nice yeah, and cold. That's what we use it for. And in the summer, it's always cool. In the winter, it's cold here. In the summer, it's always cool. Do you come out here and sit in the vestibule in the summertime very often? Oh, we don't call it that. We just call it the back entry, Todd. Mm. I do sit out here often in the summer months. Well, Matt, I, I wonder just what's been going through your mind since your last day at the aircraft plant. Whether or not you've had time to think about the future, to... To plan on what you're going to do now and, well, to get yourself busy. I'm here, Todd, in the sewing room on the second floor. Right. Well, 
Second floor, did you say, Matt? Right. That would be two flights. No, no. Just the second floor. No, come back down. Oh, I've gone one too many. All right. Now, stop right at this landing. That's it. Now in here. Straight down the hall. Right or left? Matt? Straight down the hall. You can't miss me. I'm here by the window. See? Here I am. I see you now, yes. Yes. You're looking uh, out the window, Matt. Yes. The reason I came up to this room, I get a wonderful view of my backyard and the yard next door. Todd, do you notice anything peculiar over there? Something that the police should be told about? Well, let me let me look, Matt. I I've seen that backyard a good many times. I've never noticed anything particularly unusual. No, no, I I don't see anything there. I don't either. So I guess I won't call the cops. Pleasure has overtaken Matt Neffer as he struggles to find something to keep him busy until the next spot welding job. He and his friend Todd talk long into the night. Next time, join us when we hear Matt say, Over here in the dumb waiter, Todd. In the next episode of Matt Neffer, Boy Spot Welder. the sustaining feature. Here is One Fellow's Family. Today's episode, entitled By the Seawall, is taken from book V.I. Chapter I-I-X-V-I-I-V-I-I. It's a little after ten in the morning as we look in on the family now and we see mother and father preparing to go down by the seawall with a boxed lunch. And we hear father say, Yes, Fanny, a yes. beautiful day for a picnic. Beautiful day. Yes, the birds yes. are singing. Those bushes are trimmed. This is a lovely time of the year, but then there's something sad about it, too. Yes. Oh, you know, you're sitting on the deviled egg. Yes. Oh. oh, my word. Yes. Well, we've got enough picnics well, about that anyway. Why don't you look before you sit down anyway? Honestly. I was noticing this morning the path down to the seawall seems to be growing up with weeds and vines. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. But it's a beautiful clear day, nevertheless. Hey, look, way off. Yes. Is that a boat? Yes. Looks like a boat, Fanny. What's that mean? Signal. Yes. Someone just jumped overboard. Looks what? as if he's trying to swim to shore. I can't see from here. Hello? Call a bit louder, Fanny. Well, I don't have a strong voice. Why don't you call? Huh? Hello out there. Yes? Yes. Yeah. We just saw you jump off your boat. Well, it was sinking. Yes. The boat was sinking, Teddy. Well, I thought that signal meant something like that. We thought it meant something uh, like look, that. Look, I don't want to cause you any trouble, but I just went down the second time. Could you speak up a little louder, please? Okay. I've gone down twice now, and yes. I think I read somewhere where the third time, and you know, it's, yes. so if either one of you could swim or could you go yes. to a phone or something like that. Teddy wants us to go to the telephone. Well, by the time we got to the phone, it'll be... Well, I'll try. Phone is out on the veranda. Yeah, take, uh, well, take her quite a while to get there. In that case, then, so long. Yes. All right. Did you have the toasted ham, or did you want the plane? Just the plane for me. All Too right. bad about his boat. Yes, but it's always fun here by the seawall. Yes. have been listening to One Fellow's Family, brought to you as a sustaining feature here on the Bob and Ray Show. Today's episode, entitled By the Seawall, was taken from book VI, chapter I-I-V-I-I-X-I-V-I-I. One Fellow's Family is written and produced by T. Wilson Messy. This is a Messy production. Time for just Fancy Dan, the barber of Hartsdale. As we look in on just Fancy Dan, we see him by his barber chair, attired in purple corduroy trousers, a kind of beige suede shoes, and the real gone blue hat. 
He's talking to Pliny, who's in the chair. Well, Pliny, you've had your troubles, all right. I want to say we're all mighty grateful for what you've done. Well, Pliny, it's nothing that any barber wouldn't have done. Oh, shucks, no. Not that. What, are you talk. grateful about everything? We're all done? grateful. I want to tell you that the wife is grateful, too. How's your wife feel about all I've done for your family, Pliny? She's grateful. Well, I'm sure. Kids are all mighty grateful, Man, too. I'll bet the kids are quite appreciative of all They that. want to appreciate. They appreciate everything you've done. They just turn a little bit this way. What's right, that to Dad. say about appreciating, Pliny? They say we appreciate it. Well, I don't know. What you've know. done for us. So we're all mighty no grateful. for nothing I did. Well... Something that should be said, and I'm well, glad to say it. I'm how's grateful. your wife? Is she grateful she's the way grateful. you are? She's grateful. Well, I'm sure she should be, and all your kids, too. Kids are grateful. We're almighty grateful to you, then. Well, I didn't do much of nothing for you, Pliny. I just tried to help you out over that tough spot you were getting uh, getting into there. There's one thing I want to say to you, Dan. Yeah, let me get the left side of the sideburns there. One thing I want to say to you. You want to say any one thing to me, Pliny? Right. I... We're grateful. Well, it's... It's certainly nothing I wasn't happy to do, I'll tell you that. I like to stick my nose in people's business. Wait a minute. Kind of... Oh. Did you nick me a little? Oh, it seemed like I did, yeah. Well, it's kind of flowing there. Well, I've had a full and happy life. Oh, now, Pliny, don't go talking like that. Lie down on the floor. All right, Dan. Well... We're all grateful to you. Oh, now, Pliny, you're going to pull through, all right. We're all mighty grateful, Dan. Yes, got so. Your wife grateful, too, Pliny. Yes, grateful. And I suppose grateful. the kids and your wife and you are, just can't thank me enough for all I've done for you. Getting quite weak now, Dan. Yeah, let me put this pillow under your feet. You always say get your feet up higher than your head in cases like this. I, I think certainly, that's right now. I didn't mean to nick you that way, Pliny. Well... Accidents will happen, Dan. Oh, of course. We're all mighty grateful oh, come for what now. you've done. Don't you talk that way. Yeah, I've had I'll a full, rich, and happy life. Well, I'll I just... want to say goodbye to you, Dan. I'll cut her out. Before I go, though, no I want to say one thing. Yeah, you want to say anything, Pioneer? Right. What is it? I'm grateful. Something about you being grateful, your wife, right. kids, and everybody I spoke to. Mighty grateful. I'm glad you're grateful. <laughs> Yes, we're all mighty grateful. We've been listening to Just Fancy Dan, the plain barber of Hartsdale. This is Public Lawyer, episodes dedicated to the selfless conduct of those who serve the best interests of the public. Court-appointed attorney Vernon Stitt is such a man. Now, how do you plead, prisoner? Guilty or not guilty? Well, I don't know. Do you have benefit of counsel? Uh, no. You see, Your Honor, I don't have a lawyer, to be honest with you. Well, every man, woman, and child is entitled to the fullest protection of the law. Now, there are several court-appointed attorneys here in the courtroom. Would, uh, one of you please step forward to advise this man? Oh, no. I can't see too well from here, but I suspect that that eager voice... Belongs to Vernon Stitt. Maybe I'd better go it alone and take my chances, Judge. No, the law is a complex thing, Mr. Flowers. I'm calling a ten-minute recess here so that Mr. Stitt can familiarize himself with the details of your case. I appreciate that, Your Honor. Now, would the prisoner please step forward? Prisoner, just step forward, Your Honor. Thank you, Counselor. Now, after having conferred with his attorney, how does the prisoner plead? Just a minute. Just a minute, Your Honor. I've advised Mr. Flowers not to plead guilty or not guilty either. Well, uh, I hope you know what you're doing, Counselor. Your Honor, I'm willing to take the risk. There's a precedent for all this. The State versus Cosmo, October 1928. If the good judge will look it up, he'll find that Victor Cosmo pleaded neither guilty nor not guilty in October of 1928. Well, uh... If it's a legal duel you want, my hot-headed young friend, you'll get one. I was the presiding judge on that case, and the reason Mr. Cosmo didn't plead one way or the other was because he was hit by a truck before the trial and became deceased. Judge, I think I'll go it alone. I don't want the court to do me any favors with free attorneys, especially this one. Well, uh... Your Honor, I'd like to ask for a recess. On what grounds, may I know? Some new evidence has come up that will be of interest to this court. 
Counselor, there hasn't as yet been a trial. I haven't seen any kind of evidence. Exactly, Your Honor. We're dealing with the pre-introduction of evidence before a trial, a totally new legal concept. Oh, get out of here, Stitt. That's ridiculous. <laughs> That's just what I've been waiting for. An outburst from you, Your Honor. I move that this case be thrown out of court because of pre-trial prejudice on the part of the presiding judge. Frankly, Counselor, I am prejudiced. I think you're a boob. Judge, I didn't come with this guy. All he said to me during the recess was that we were involved in a desperate gamble for time, even before he heard what I was doing here. I think he's a nut, so I'll plead guilty. So be it. Time for King Yukon of the Northwest. King Yukon is a big, beautiful dog. And, of course, he belongs to the great sergeant of the Northwest Mounted Police, the late, great Sergeant Clarence E. McGillicuddy. As we look in on Sergeant McGillicuddy, for our down king, King Yukon is right at his heels as they make their way into Dawson. And we hear... Come on, dog. Got to ride into Dawson for supplies. Sergeant, there. Yes, dog. I'm not the dog there. I am Pierre. Oh, yes. Pierre, the half-breed on it there. Yes, Pierre. Hey, what was you doing on top of that dog there? You was taking him on top of the town there with the big, uh... What's the matter with that dog there? Well, Pierre, nothing's the matter with the dog. We were just striking down a group of desperate criminals. Oh. Oh, you mean some was, uh... Take the pelt from on top of the trap. Stealing the pelts out of the trap, Pierre, and we're here to straighten out the whole thing. Get that dog away on it, there. I'll kick him on top of the chubs there. Down, boy. I see you don't like dogs, Pierre. I don't like a dog that would growl on top of me there. He never barks or growls unless he knows there's something that he shouldn't like about I got half pound hamburger on top of the back pocket. That's what he was. Oh, that's probably the reason. Down, boy. I will kick that dog there. You don't talk him off there. Well, we've got to be getting Talk him off me there. Come on, boy. Down. Hey, Sergeant. He is pretty mean. Hey, Sergeant there. Oh, he's going after me now. Wait just a minute. Down, boy. Why you have a dog like that, Sergeant? It was making trouble all the time. I don't know. They just assigned him to me. I was get get him loose there on top of the woods. Down. Down, boy. Have you been having any trouble with your pelts, Pierre? Yeah, they was not hold up these pans. Uh, I was having an awful time on top of the cold weather. You have been listening to King Yukon, the great dog, and his friend, Sergeant Clarence McKillicuddy of the Northwest Mounted Police. All brought to you by someone. This is Project Farsight. Hello. We're here at the Rocket Development Center at Vail Technological, and I'm with the head of the Rocket Research Department, Dr. Morley Bain. We'll explain the new crash program in space vehicles. The program instituted when the other fellow got his hardware on the moon before we did. Where shall we start, Dr. Bain? Well, uh, I might start by pointing out this three-stage rocket uh, right here. It uh, just came off the production line, and already it's approaching obsolescence. Because of the successful moonshot by the other fellow? That's right. Now, at the present moment, the best we can hope for with this particular piece of hardware is that it might go into orbit fairly close to the moon. Well, what is that uh, familiar-looking piece of equipment the men are installing in its nose cone, Doctor? Uh, That's a very powerful magnet. Now, you see, the project uh, we're involved in here is called Operation uh, Grab-Off. Now, uh, we'd like to get the other fellow's hardware off the moon uh, if we can. Well, how's the project working out, Doctor? Well, now, as you can see, uh, most of the tools and other equipment here at the uh, Rocket Research Center have uh, sprung onto the powerful magnet. So production on this particular vehicle has slowed up a bit. I see. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, there's also the possibility that uh, the gantry... And that's the apparatus that keeps the rocket in place on the launching pad might be dragged along by the magnet uh, when the rocket is fired. So uh, I don't think uh, we've got much going for us here, to be honest. I'd be inclined to agree with you on that, Doctor. I believe I see an automobile stuck to the magnet there. Oh, yeah, I see it now. Well, now that would blow up the missile a lot, too. On this other missile over here, Doctor, what modifications are being made that might herald the success of Operation Grab-Off? Well, uh, now, if we can put this vehicle into orbit, no more than, say, a thousand miles from the moon... 
At Apogee, that is. Uh-huh. Uh, we plan to have uh, rather large uh, rotor vanes operating at terrific speed uh, in the first stage of the rocket, uh, creating a powerful suction. Something like our own vacuum cleaner, is that it, Doctor? Well, now, that's the general idea, yes. It's just possible that uh, we might get the other fellow's piece of hardware off the moon if our uh, suction is uh, powerful enough. Well, if it's too powerful, Doctor, our own piece of hardware could suffer as well if theirs came up a little too fast. Well, that's right. Uh, well, excuse me, just Ramon. I believe the suction apparatus is about to be tested at the far end of the center here. Uh, yes, they seem ready to test it now. There goes the whole east wing of the rocket research department being stuck right up there. Well, I guess uh, we'll have to look around for some cushioning material. Uh, some of the new foam rubbers are pretty good, I think. Now, if that doesn't pan out, as an operation grab-off possibility. Uh, we're working on an extraordinarily long pair of pliers. Uh, we've got other plans. This has been Operation Farsight, a glimpse of tomorrow, here and now. And now, Graham Crackers, with chocolate all over them, presents Matt Neffer, boy spot welder. As we look in on Matt today, we find him at the factory reporting for his new job. With him is his assistant, his good friend, Todd. Todd says... Is this the place where you're going to work on the new invention, Matt? This is it, Todd. Look, would you uh, prepare my settling torch, please, for welding? Yes, of course. Where will you be welding today, Matt? By that I mean, will you be welding in this part of the invention or... Over here by the supply room, Todd. Oh, yes. I was just asking you if you were going to be welding at that end of the invention or the other end. The end nearest the door, way down there, Todd. I thought I'd get that done today. But... Work my way back towards But isn't that the dangerous end? Yes, I'm afraid it is, Todd, but... We might as well get the touchy things over with as quickly as possible. Well, Matt, you have more nerves than I do. I, I wouldn't want to be working around anything atomic like this with an acetylene torch. Here, I've... I've prepared, prepared the torch now, and all of your welding equipment is ready. Over here by the time clock, Todd. Oh, yes. I was just saying, I've prepared all of your welding equipment. Oh, I just clocked in. All right, let's go back over there. Matt, you won't mind if, if I stay at this end of the convention and you work down at the other end. It's not that I'm afraid, but... I understand, Todd. People are usually afraid of things they don't understand. I think it's a case of you're just not knowing what's going on here, and rather hesitant to work with me. And no, I, I appreciate your feelings. Go, stand in the safety zone. It's all right. Right on, Matt. Well, first, before you leave, would you put on my uh, welding glasses, please, and hat? Well, what do I want to put on your welding glasses and hat for? I'm going to be in the safety zone. No, put them on me, Todd. Oh, yes, Matt, of course. All right, hurry now to the safety zone, Todd. I must get about this very dangerous welding. Good luck, Matt. Thank you, Todd. Matt Neffer, Boy's Spot Welding King, is brought to you by Graham Crackers with chocolate all over them. Join us next time when you'll hear Matt say, Up here, Todd, stuck to the ceiling. On Matt Neffer, Boy's Spot Welder. Here is Natalie Attired to give the first of our college song readings in her song, Say, Manor. And uh, you're, this is the... Uh, first one to be saluted in our series. That's it? right. I've gone through the mail, and we have selected this as the winner. Well, uh, first of all, tell me what the school is, if you will. I'm sure they're all... The winner there. is Lowell Textile Institute. and uh, Massachusetts, is it? Yes, and they have forwarded uh, this fight song that uh, I will say now, and the, and the reason we have selected them is that we like the letter best. Well, that's what we will do each week for a college and a high school. Uh, we'll have Natalie say your song... If we deem your letter to be the best, called from our mail. You guys know uh, Edison High? What? Edison High? I don't believe... Do you know that, Natalie? Well, I could get it. Edison High in Miami. They send us the words, and uh, the letter, the reason for saying it is the best, we'll do it. 
Oh, well, you've got to send in. Got to send it in, yeah, on your college or school stationery. All right. Well, I think then I'll, I'll do that for Lowell Textile Institute. Would you like to look at the letter? Oh, that nice. Yeah, let me read it. Wait, wait a minute. Dear Bob and Ray, we would like to hear our song because your program is our favorite and we think you are about the best on the radio and how you can keep it up day after day is more than we can figure. We try, but... Sometimes we think we're funny, too, but we see. can't... Because sometimes when I'm at home, I try to be funny like you fellows, and it just doesn't seem to be as funny as when you're saying the same sort of a thing. And my wife, who has a good sense of humor also, thinks that when I talk sometimes like what you've been saying, it doesn't seem to be half as funny as the way you say it. My wife has always said that uh, she was uh, had a pretty good judge. And uh, so our first salute to a school is... Lowell Textile Institute, is that right? That's right. All right, right Natalie, there. hard go. Root toot toot. Root toot toot. We are the boys from the Institute. We're not rough. We're not tough. But we are determined. Thank you, Natalie, tired. And our congratulations to all of the the winners up there, the members of uh, Lowell Tech, I'm sure they'll be happy to hear that. Oh, song. I know they are. And we'll be looking for Eddie, your college song what's next the, week. Eddie, uh, you just can't hold one of those. I'm sorry, uh, what's the Anyway, you can't hold one of those drumsticks? I just had a sandwich of mayonnaise on it. Oh, I see. Well, that'll do it. A little dab will do it. And now, crackers covered all over with salt presents Lawrence Vickenberger, interstellar officer candidate. In our last episode, Lawrence Sachsenberger, with his boisterous but serious compatriots at the Interstellar Space Academy, have been given the assignment of taking the experimental rocket IGS-2 to Osiris, the unknown planet. Now, as Sachsenberger makes his last-minute preparations, Mug Malish comes up to him and we hear... Oh, Malish. Nah, Sachsenberger. Are you making the trip to Osiris with us? Well, I suppose I got to, Sachsenberger. The chief assigned me this trip. How are your grades this semester? Oh, what are you always talking about my grades for, Fechtenberg? They're very important here at the Interstellar Officer Academy, I'll have you know, Mellish. <laughs> I'm sneering. You always sneer. That's one thing that's wrong with you, Mellish, other than that you don't apply yourself in the classroom. If you want to be a good officer candidate, you must study. But someday it will be your responsibility and your duty to go out into space and to defend this great planet. Poo-poo, Fechtenberger. Oh, poo-poo yourself, Lawrence. Or Mark Mellish. <laughs> well, come on. We might as well not waste any time. I've checked over the decentralizing starboard stabilizer. What's the oxygen situation, Mr. Osiris? Well, it's the unknown planet. We don't know. But we have plenty of reserve oxygen in the tanks for us. Well, as human beings, you know, we must have oxygen in order to live. If there's no oxygen on Osiris, there would be a good chance that we would not live. I no. think I skipped class that day. Oh, you see now how that stuff comes back to roost? You have to attend every class and pay strict attention to your instructors. Poo-poo, Fessenberg. Oh, poo-poo to you, Mark Mellie. The motors are revving up now, Mellie. It's too late for you to change your mind. You're going to Osiris with it. Crackers covered all over with salt has brought you another thrilling episode in the timely Space Age series... Lawrence Fechtenberger, Interstellar Officer Candidate. Hello again, ladies. We're sitting in Aunt Penny's delightful sunlit kitchen, ready for another delightful true-to-life story from Aunt Penny herself, who's just made some gingerbread. Aunt Penny, that looks delicious. Well... You can just bet it is. And hello, everyone. Doesn't that look good then? I'll bet this is made with creamy, digestible chicken fat, Aunt Penny. You bet it is. All my cooking and baking, I always use chicken fat because I find it so digestible. It just sits in your stomach like a commemorative half-dollar piece. Well, I'm going to have a sample of it, Aunt Penny, while you get to today's true-to-life story. But I don't eat too much, Danny. Uh, it'll kill your appetite. Oh, <laughs> I won't, Aunt Penny. <laughs> Now then, ladies. Uh, I, I, do you mind if I raise the shade just a little bit? There seems to be too much sunlight here in your sunlit kitchen. Well, would you please? Now then, the story I thought I'd tell you today 
There's a story about... How's that for you, Aunt Penny? No sunlight? That's fine, Danny, although there's maybe a little too much coming in there. If you could just right, close the Venetian blinds <clears throat> just a tiny, tiny bit. There, that's just about perfect. Yes, that's fine. Story of Mr. and Ms. Edward Bullock. Well, what about Miss and Mrs. Bullock, uh, Aunt Penny? Where'd they well, live? Mr. and Mrs. Bullock. Wait just a minute. Let me go over and fix it. Okay, there. Pull up. Well, why don't you leave things alone, Dad? Now, there it is, Aunt Penny. I'll just tack the corner of it here so it won't fly up again. For Mrs. and Mrs. Bullock lived in a small town... Have you got a hammer, Danny? What? Have you a hammer so I can tack this? Oh, Danny, I can't tell stories if you're going to be running around the room like this. Well, I just want to get the room. Breaking the window, you've torn the shade down. Nice head of it. Here's a hammer. Thank you, Aunt Penny. Now, no more, please. Well, Mr. Mr. Oh, my word, Danny. What with all the carrying on, I'm afraid I don't have time for the story of Miss Miss Bullock. Oh, dear. But you ladies remember now to do all your cooking with chicken fat. It's so digestible and so good that you'll have the fluffiest cakes and the nicest pie crust you ever thought possible. I'm going to help myself to some more gingerbread, Aunt Penny, if you don't mind. My word, you're a flannel mouth, Danny. Great. Well, you're not going to leave our story there, are you? Well, I have to. I have to leave. Between all the talk about chicken fat and you're breaking the window and tearing down the shade, I haven't had time to tell the story. Well, I'm sorry, lady. <laughs> and now, listeners, a few moments with Leonard Burnside as he explains crooning, its origins and its place in the musical world. Mr. Leonard Burnside. Crooning. A cacophony of sound cascading from a verdant musical jungle? Or is it a well-planned, throaty accumulation of sounds by a great organizer of melody? We shall see. Mr. Besdale, if you please. Body out and bow, rotten diddy Thank you, Mr. Besdale. Now that we have heard, we begin to wonder... One almost thinks of crooning as a fragmentary bit of Americana, revealing, yet quasi-damaging in its consistency. And while the music is being paraphrased, listen to this strain. And so we begin to see what Gerald Deckhart was getting at. Nothing frightening about it, indeed. It's a fructifying experience. You see, Deckhart was not so much interested in musical content as he was in the elasticity of the note. The music would be sung heartily or with a moue of distaste. Mr. Desdale. Slowly we come to terms with crooning, but it was not until 1923 that we realized the dynamism, the inbreeding of crooning with the more stable or unprogresso kind of music. So the cross-fertilization had begun. The inculcation, the emergence, the precipitation, the entree, so to speak, the entrance to the back door of music had been accomplished, and there was no going back. I want you to pay particular note to the enchanting Deckhart variation here, Mr. Bedsdale. How can two themes run concurrently? Well, it's a tribute to the genius of Deckard. While one melody advances rubato, the other recedes contrapuntally into the background, diminuendo, barely making itself heard, only to return with mild influence. <laughs> if that sounded oppressive, it was exactly what Deckard set out to achieve, the bittersweet. Again, we hear the melancholy yearnings of one sad note, overtaking another sad note without taxing the structure. The Weltschmerz of these Descartes outpourings never ceases to amaze me. Mr. Bezdale, if you please finish this particular piece we're dealing with now. So there you have it. Descartes knew that sooner or later he'd have to be dealt with. His music was a force that could not, would not be denied. 
So there we have it. Descartes knew that sooner or later he would have to be dealt with. His music was a force that could not, would not be denied. His was a world of melody, and melody meant all the world to him. I think we must reckon crooning as a serious, yet sympathetical art form. Not to do so would be unwise. Bravissimo, my good friend Descartes. I applaud you. Thank you for what you did. And now, with his stirring theme, Old MacDonald Had a Farm, recorded on the piano by his wife, we present the Barbonary agriculture expert, Dean Archer Armstead, director of the Lackawanna, New York Field Station, Dean, it's a real pleasure to see you again. Mm-hmm. Uh, today we thought maybe it would be interesting if we uh, handed over some of the mail to you and uh, let you answer some of the farm problems and questions that have been submitted. Several people, Dean. Several people, Dean, have submitted uh, samples of various twigs and leaves which they have found in their travels during vacation. I'd like to have you identify them. Open up the first one. Well, one you're holding in your hair now. See what it is. That's poison sumac. Uh, poison sumac. <clears throat> Here is a, uh, a branch, some kind of a... looks like a, a vine or something. That is some sort of a vine. And can you identify it a little more clearly? I mean, well, what? it's a type of vine that uh, grows in the... Eastern section of the uh, North American continent extends all the way from, from the uh, Maryland, probably clear up into the Canadian provinces, Canadian. I see. All right. Our uh, next one here is a shiny uh, uh, red leaf, or small leaf. It's a maple leaf. It's a maple leaf. And this one here, how about this? Oak. Oak and uh, this letter is very interesting. It says, I believe that during my vacation I stumbled upon... A man-eating mulberry bush. I am submitting a, a piece of twig from it. Can you identify it as such? Well, I don't believe that there is any man-eating mulberry bushes uh, anymore. For one period of time, we were very concerned about the man-eating mulberry bush. And uh, they uh, just uh, went around for so many years across the much trouble. And we wondered about what to do. I would recommend in this case that it's right for me for a pamphlet. And a pamphlet of a return mail. Mm-hmm. Archer Armstead for the Agriculture Forum of the Air, direct from the Lackawanna Field Station. Thank you, Dean. And now to Las Vegas, Nevada, and Wally Ballou. Wally Ballou speaking from fabulous Las Vegas. Fun spot. People from all over the United States. We're standing in the lobby of the Club Tumbleweed, Las Vegas' newest uh, emporium. A beautiful uh, hotel, uh, expertly appointed, I would say, and I'm chatting with the uh, manager uh, who has high hopes that this first season will be uh, a great send-off to the club. I wonder, uh, Harvey, if you'd come over here and tell us a little bit about your plans for the future. Well, I'm looking forward to what I hope will be a wonderful year here at my new club. And, uh, and Somebody's uh, uh, shushing you there. Yes. Well, we should talk a little more. The, uh, this the club here uh, that I've opened, uh, Wally, uh, will feature more or less a relaxed atmosphere. There will be... Uh, We're broadcasting, uh, ladies. There will be, uh, for instance, tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, there is uh, Reveille. And uh, all the guests uh, file out into, their, into the uh, hall uh-huh. and then march downstairs into the lobby and... Uh, We'll go out for a short four or five mile hike before uh, we come back for an all vegetable breakfast. I see. They uh, you you uh, concentrate them on uh, uh, helpful activities. Yeah, I hear beautiful music in the background. Yes, it's a lovely organization that I have here playing music uh, up until seven uh, fifteen at night. Of course, it lights out at eight o'clock. That's Everyone's what I understood. Uh, tucked away, Betty. Bye bye. Go to bed. Uh, over here, I see a, a very beautifully appointed bar. Could you tell us something about this? Yes. This bar, you can buy any fruit or vegetable juice that you'd want or could ever desire. I think you told me warm milk is served uh, from oh, 7.30 to 8. Warm okay. milk with small common crackers. 
On the bulletin board, I see that Saturday is bird-watching time. Well, that will be part of the hike on Saturday. Uh, We come back, uh, say, uh, Monday through Friday, and when we come back from the morning hike, we have our vegetable breakfast. Oh, somebody... What are you doing? Somebody dropped a glass of fruit. I didn't like the cut of his jib when he signed in here last night. How many uh, guests do you have at the present time here in Las Vegas at your club? Six. Six. Six, eh? Yes. And reservations for how many more? Well, we don't have any more reservations. We're hoping that by this broadcast, uh, I'm sure it'll sound good to a great many people. Good luck here at the Tumbleweed in fabulous Las Vegas. A real fun spot. And now back to Bob and Ray in New York. Now, Matt Neffer, boy spot welding king of the world. Matt and his friend Todd have of late been worried over strange telephone calls and letters which Matt has received from someone apparently out to get him. Now, in Matt's garage, he and Todd sit discussing. Seems funny to me, Todd, but every day I either get a strange letter, unsigned, or a phone call, or interrupted, all the time threatening. Could I have just a little bit more of that cocoa, Matt? Certainly. Yes, I know what you mean. It's it's certainly a perplexing situation, one that I'm sure only you will find the answer to. Up here in the back porch. Oh, yes. Hi, this back porch is holding up well, Matt. Must be 35 or 40 years old now. Todd, here. What? Underneath the chair, another note. Read it. This is our final warning to you, Napper. Either you get out of town by Friday or suffer the consequences. Matt, who would be... If you know beans, Neffer, you'll be gone. Well, who would send a thing like that, Matt? What do you mean by if you knew beans, you'd be gone? Well, it could be one of two things, I suppose, Matt. If, if you knew beans, meaning a person, or if you knew beans, meaning baked beans, or lima beans, or string beans, cold beans. Right here in the cut. living room, Todd. Oh, yes. Yeah. I didn't see you leave, Matt. Wasn't there a Beans Ridden who umpired in the National League for many years? Yes, I I think there was, Matt. But how could that possibly have anything to do with this? Well, it's a nickname, obviously. It's second. Oh. Hello, Matt Neffer, boy spot welder. Is you, Neffer? Yes? If you know Beans, you get out of town. Well, do you mean... Do you know Beans? Well... Hello? Hello? What happened, Matt? Hello? He hung up. Hmm. It was a voice asking me if I knew Bean. Matt, this... This is becoming more and more perplexing every day. What are you going to do? Up here in the attic, Todd. And so the threats to Matt Neffer come at an even greater frequency than they have been. And who is Bean? Or what is Bean? Or what are Bean? Next time, we'll hear Matt say from the basement, Look, Todd, my boiler hath runneth over. In the next episode of Matt Neffer, Boy Spot Welder, a copyrighted radio feature. This episode may not be rebroadcast without the express consent of the president of the National Football League, whoever he is. again in the sports room, uh, ready to talk to our guest, the legendary grand old man of uh, football in an off-season football interview with Coach Pop O'Brien of the Golden Cougars of Midwest University. Say hello to all your fans out there, Pop. Well, hello, pigskin lovers out there. Pop, I uh, guess you're pretty much of a legend, aren't you? Well, I guess you might say that I was born at a gridiron bed. Where'd you get the uh, nickname of Pop, Pop? Well, uh, most people credit... Slipper Hanley was inventing my nickname, but uh, the truth is, I gave Slipper Hanley his nickname. That's all? Uh, I was the first one to call him Slipper. Slipper Hanley. I guess he's a bigger legend than uh, even you are, Pop. No, I think I'm a bigger legend. Well, when your team, the Golden Cougars, are in the dressing room getting ready for the big game... Well, they're all big, Biff. Every doesn't one the of team them. say, let's win this one for the old Slipper? Well, uh, yes, they do, Biff. 
But uh, it's not that dramatic. Well, a picture of the team in the locker room at halftime. Kids fighting back tears because they're losing the game. The brooding silence and suddenly a voice with quiet resolve says, Let's win this one for the old slipper. It is moving, Pop. Well, not if you know Slipper. Uh, he's a prominent industrialist, and he's in with the showbiz crowd. He's flashy, and he knows Frank Sinatra. And he's got a stable of four fighters, and he wears two rings on his pinky. Recently, I saw a picture of him in the window of a restaurant shaking hands with Gene Fulmer. And I believe he recently acquired a piece of a Las Vegas casino, too. That's didn't right. He? he just bought into the Pink Bandit. I believe it's run by the syndicate. I've heard that, Pop. What's the deal, do you know? Well, uh, just as soon as the papers were signed, giving Slipper 25% of the Pink Bandit, uh, he had to turn over his full 25% interest to the syndicate. That's the only way they let him operate. Well, if he turned over the full 25%, he doesn't own anything. Well, the syndicate's pretty rough, Biff. Incidentally, about Slipper, recently he was given a solid gold cigarette case, a gift from a renowned continental beauty. I didn't know that, Pop. True. Now, uh, Biff, uh, knowing all this stuff about Slipper, I don't understand how any member of the team can say, let's win this one for the old Slipper. Well, I see what you mean. It just doesn't sound right. It would sound right if Slipper were an old, shaky man being helped into the stadium, his memory fading a bit, not quite knowing which team is which. A man with shoulders bent by a million burdensome problems. But above all, a man who shouldn't be out on the stadium on such a cold day. In short, pop a man like you. That's what I thought, yeah. But the fact is, on the day of the game, your players still say, let's win this one for the old slipper. How come they don't want to win it for you, Pop? Well, uh, there's no accounting for taste. I guess you know that, Biff. Uh, maybe my voice is too raspy. I think that's probably the reason. It gets on their nerves. I don't think that's the reason. If it were, the players uh, could very well say on the day of the big game. Well, they're all big, Biff. Let's win this one for raspy-voiced old Pop. Well, that doesn't sound very good, Biff. The only, only other reason I can see for the players not giving you vocal homage in the locker room is the fact that the Golden Cougars haven't won a game since 1949. That's right. You can't win them all, Biff. Don't I know it, Pop? Our legendary coach of the Golden Golfers of Midwest University. This is... Our Cougars, excuse me. This is Biff Burns uh, saying until next time, this is Biff Burns saying so long from the sports room. One of our best friends came in. And I assume, uh, Barry, that you're here in town just for a stopover. Here, ladies and gentlemen, is star of stage, screen, radio, television, Mr. Barry Campbell. Well, thank you very much, Bob, and hello again, everyone. Barry, uh, I want you to know how much we appreciate you dropping by because we didn't have anything scheduled, and uh, would you tell us just what you are doing in town? Well, I uh, made a daring departure in my career, although I'm still interested in acting, of course. I have, uh, on the advice of my manager and agent so far, formed an all-girl orchestra. We feel that hey. there's a, a great void there. Well, the you're, uh, you're stepping out into a new field now, having conquered the, uh, the arts of um, movies and television and radio. Uh, you have this all-girl orchestra completely formed? Uh, pretty much so. We're still looking for the male singer. Well, you're going to have a male... You won't be handling vocal chores yourself. Now. Uh, no, I... Uh, carry a tune, as you probably know, gentlemen, but uh, I don't think well enough to handle the singing chores. Barry Campbell, ladies there. and gentlemen, uh, having uh, achieved success in so many fields now, gives us, for the first time on the air, the word that he is going into the uh, orchestral field uh, with an all-girl orchestra. How many will you have in, uh, in the troupe? There'll be 18 members. 18 members. And uh, do you have any new sounds that you... Uh, you're going to uh, introduce to music-loving America? Well, no, uh, except that uh, we're going to emphasize violins and string uh, section. String mm -hmm. section. Uh, most of our arrangements, we hope, will be very lush. I see. Have you got any bookings for your band as yet? Yes, we're uh, playing here in New York now. Uh, that, that is, we're opening tomorrow night. Is that so? Wonderful. At the skating rink at Central Park. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I understand you brought along a record, and we're going to hear a little touch of it. We don't have time for the whole thing. No, we hope that this record will get get us off the ground, so to speak. It's called Zip. Barry Campbell and his all-girl orchestra with Zip. Uh, I'm sorry that we can't uh, play a little bit more of that. That's a real strong sound. 
very much, uh, gentlemen. It's always a pleasure for me to come up here to your show. It's, I consider it a second home. Well, thank you very much. Thank Campbell. you, Bob. Thank you, Ray. And certainly, uh, certainly a pleasure always to see you. And, and don't be a stranger, you hear? All right. And thank you. good luck Bye. on your opening. I thought he said busy now. Lush music and string sections and all that. I mean, that record doesn't sound anything like no, what he described. It's quite so. different than I had expected. But you can always look to Barry Campbell for the new, the unusual, the different. But nice. The show-stopping. Hi, this is Johnny Braddock welcoming you to another edition of Sportsophone. You all know how we play the game. I'll start describing a famous sports figure, and as soon as you think you know who it is, call me Johnny Braddock at Pickering 6. The first person with the correct answer will win a valuable prize. And let's go now. The sports figure I'm thinking of has many times been involved in tape measure home runs. His initials are M.M. Uh, Braddock, the guy you're talking about is Mickey Mantle. He's been involved in tape measure home runs, okay? Uh, he's sending a valuable prize to Lou Cornshafter, care of B. Ragsdale, Pulver Heights, Maryland. I'm sorry, Mr. Cornshafter, but there'll be no valuable prize for you. Mickey Mantle is not the correct answer. Well, what a con artist you are, Braddock. You can't stand it if someone guesses right, can you? You change the sports figure in midair if a guy guesses. It's a serious charge, Mr. Cornchapter. Ordinarily, I'd demand satisfaction from you, but it would involve an expensive trip to Maryland and a good deal of tedium once I got there. Well, if it ain't Mickey Mantle, who is it? I mean, Braddock, who hits a ball that long that has to be measured? The answer to that, Mr. Cornchapter, is in our underground vault, tucked away from prying eyes. And Mr. Minnesee, our accountant, is standing guard over the vault, ledger book in hand, ready to do battle, flail away at intruders if need be. Horse feathers, Braddock. You're a pony in your north. Thank you for the kind appellation, Mr. Cornchafter. Goodbye. Maloney. Now, the sports figure I'm thinking of, the one involved in tape measure home runs, was a boy who gained wind and endurance by running the tape measure from home plate to the deepest part of the bleachers. A sickly lad at first. Oscar Levant. No, sir. Sheet. A sickly lad at first. He... I got your clue, Mr. Braddock. Got to be Musial, Scar, and Hodges, Peter, Mickey Vernon, or any one of a bunch of other first basemen. What makes you think our famous sports figure is a first baseman? Well, I thought the key words, the clue, so to speak, were the words at first. Well, I wouldn't say the first baseman you just mentioned were sickly. They all seem robust to me. Well, Craddock, who made you a doctor? you got trouble enough lying on your program without getting into the field of medicine. I'll bet you don't even know the difference between measles and mumps. Yes, I do. The difference is about an inch and a half. Very funny, Braddock. I'll take vanilla. And this sickly lad grew up and became a champion swimmer who appeared in many Olympic contests. Later, he played the role of Tarzan in many movies. His first name is Johnny. His last initial is W. Uh, this is Corey Shafter from Maryland again. You got my address. But don't horse around, Braddock. The guy you're talking about is Johnny Wiseball. Tarzan in the movie. Send a valuable prize. Wrong again, Corn Shafter. The figure I'm thinking of is Johnny Williams. Braddock, this guy Johnny Williams, he never played Tarzan in the movie, did he? Not that I know of, Corn Shafter. But you said he did. I made a mistake. I'll get you for this, Braddock. On a dark night, I'll get you. Yeah, this is Johnny Braddock closing out another edition of Sports Report. We had a great deal of uh, mail since uh, Wedley Webster's last appearance, at which time he uh, gave us a book review, and uh, he's here today. Webb, uh, quite a few people have requested that you give us another one, you with the help of the Wedley Webster players. I see you have them assembled out there in the big studio. Uh, do you have something for us? Yes, that's right, Bob. I thought we might dramatize what I think is one of the most interesting scenes in a new book that I'm going to review for you, Tom Swift and his Atomic Fertilizer Spreader. Oh, this is one of the uh, Tom Swift series, of course, so familiar with the younger generation and the older. Well, it's the latest, I think, the latest Tom Swift. It must be. He never employed atomic power before. Uh-huh. Well, now, where does this scene take place in his uh, laboratory or in... No, they're they're about four days out at sea as we look in on uh, the players now, and they'll dramatize, I think, the most dramatic part of the whole book. Taking your pardon, Captain. What be what, matey? Well, we're four days out, and we still don't know where we're going. Isn't it time you open the sealed orders? Why, you... Oh! 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 Now get up off on the deck and talk to me with a civil tongue in your head. Saying your part. Belay, matey. What you mean coming by here and giving the good cap an orders? Well, it's only that the men are getting a little shaky, sir. They want Why, to know where they're going. you 
Begging your pardon, sir, it was only a civil question I was asking. Get up off the deck. All right, sir. Have you all had your grog today? That's right, sir. Why? No. No. Taking it easy, sir. Now I think maybe you'll be keeping that civil tongue in your head. Aye, aye, sir. Take our feet out of the galley. Get me some food. Aye, aye, sir. Why? No. No. And that's the scene, huh? That's it. I think that's the most dramatic thing I've ever oh. heard or read about. Well, where was Tom Swift? I recommend it to everybody from six to six. Well, that's all right, but... Tom Swift, that is Atomic Fertilizer Spreader. Another Webley Webster book review. We're now back inside. Hello there. Hello, Natalie. Remember me? Tom saying time, I guess. Natalie attired, ladies and gentlemen, with her company steady and... With what kind of a song for this warm week? Well, typical, wonderful summer song. In the good old summertime? Well, the, the, you must have seen it. I, wish I did, yes. I was looking over your shoulder. Well, why, why wouldn't you let me introduce it? Well, you can introduce it. Well, right? I know what you've taken all the fun out of it now. Yes, it is, in the good old summertime. Now, is this a particularly yeah. different arrangement, or, uh, Natalie? Uh, nothing. Is this I... a new arrangement, or different, or anything different about it? No. Of course, it features Eddie on the drums, uh -huh. and that's about it. So if you're prepared for it, let's swing, Eddie. All right. There's a time in each year that we always hold dear. Good old summertime. With the birds and the treeses. Oh, I don't remember that part of and it. And the sweet scented breeze. What? I don't remember this part of it. I remember in the good old summertime. In the good old well, that's the chorus. This is oh, you're doing the verse, too. Yes. Why don't you right, well, try up? Let me just do it my way. I've never known you to be such a pest. Go ahead, ahead please. Right. There's a time in each year that we always hold dear. Good old summertime. I don't think I ever heard that with part the birds, of it before. I don't as a care of whether fact. you ever heard it before. With the, all right, Eddie. With the birds and the trees and the sweet scented breezes, good old summertime. When your day's work is over, then you're in clover, and life is one beautiful rhyme. No trouble annoying, each one is enjoying the good old summertime. This is part you probably know. Well, let's see. I don't remember any of it up to here. Eddie? In the good old summertime... In the good old summertime. That's the part I know. Rolling yeah. through the shady lanes with your sure, baby mind. Yeah. Will you dry up? Who, me? I'm at the time. No, you're all right, Eddie. It's just following you. Go ahead. You hold her hand and she holds yours, and that's a very good sign. But she's your tootsie wootsie in the good old summertime. Well, that's our song said this week by Natalie Attired, who until next time says... I hope you mind your business next time. In this geophysical year, Farman Ray's scientific department has been following very closely the activities of Professor Angelo Groggins in Herkimer, New York, who is about to attempt, within the next few weeks, a trip to the moon. And we brought our microphones here again this week to chat with the uh, professor. I understand, uh, Professor, you've added a few new uh, uh, luxuries to your spaceship here. Hello, Bob, and welcome back. It's awfully good to see you again. Could we go inside, first of all? I'd like to see sure. what changes you've made. Sure, Let's go right in through the hatch. The heavy automatic hatch, which you probably can hear in the background, enabling us to... Better let me go in first, all right. Bob. I'll climb in after you then. Okay, now I'll close it down. Have, uh, there we are. Gone to a great deal of uh, expense in remodeling the ship after the first uh, two or three unsuccessful tries. Well, do you like it? I certainly do. The drapes here were picked out by my sister. The uh, new linoleum is certainly outstanding, too. Yeah. Well, uh, you hear right. That's the grandfather's clock. Grandfather's clock, yeah. Well, of course, time is probably the most important thing on this trip. And uh, I had to have a, a good clock. And uh, this one's been in the family over 150 years. I've, I've been reading uh, in the press releases that your publicity department has sent out about the new, uh, improved, uh, high-efficiency jet-propelled uh, engines that you've installed. Well, now, that, of course, is wrong. These are not jet-propelled. These are an L-head four-cylinder engine. Well, I think maybe you'd 
Got to speak to your press department then. Well, I don't back. have any press department at all, Bob. Well, someone uh, is sending out releases about you. Well, it could be the folks here in Herkimer. You know, they think I'm pretty much of a jerk, and they probably want to make a fool out of me. I wonder if, could we hear the uh, roar of the the powerful uh, motors that will propel you toward the moon? Well, you frighten me. It's not so much of a roar, but as a gentle ticking sound. Uh, As I pointed out to you in an earlier broadcast, Bob, uh, these are converted, uh, as you know. Yes. uh, Power lawnmower motors Mm -hmm. that I've assembled here. Well, now, this is starter button here. What would happen if I... Well, I push that, and then I turn the crank like that. Well, you'll hear the gentle, not roar of the powerful motor. Make it much more quiet uh, And I have the crank inside, too, which is important, because on the way to the moon, you might pump into some bum weather. You wouldn't want to be outside cranking it. I can understand that. Maybe you can hear the... What's happening exactly there, Professor? I'm just turning over. Something has stopped. Uh, the clock just struck one, uh, Professor. Does that mean anything? Uh, signal? It means i got to go back to work. One mm-hmm. o'clock. 